You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. And in this episode, we are discussing episode 506 of Orphan Black, Manacled Slim Wrists. And while we will talk about everything that happened in that episode, there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. So what's your overall feeling about this episode, Stephanie? Well, I mostly feel like, holy moly, things are kicking into gear, is I think my initial reaction. How about you? I mean, any time an episode ends with, like, a village on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of, you know, kicking into gear is one way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought there was, like, a lot of stuff going on. I kind of can't tell how I feel about the episode as a whole, just because, like, a lot of terrible stuff happened, but also a lot of progress was made, I feel like, plot-wise. Although I feel like maybe I saw some comments on on the interwebs that maybe disagree with me. So we're kind of like, what what is this episode? Do people not realize that that they only have four episodes left? Huh, that's curious. I thought, I thought there was like a lot of stuff revealed this episode that needed to be revealed. So yeah, I I agree. That's interesting feedback. Yeah, I have to say that's that's not my impression of the episode. I, I agree with you. I feel like we got quite a bit that happened here. And Whereas, you know, I made the the metaphor previously that the season was feeling a bit like a marathon. This kind of feels like people broke into a sprint at this point. Yes, we got some more clues dropped, I suppose, but I feel like they kickstarted some kickstarted some stuff that's clearly going to get wrapped up in the remainder of the season. So yeah, I don't have that impression. But, you know, that's that's me. Mm-hmm. But I'm with you. I, I feel like I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the episode as a whole. I feel like I'm still trying to digest it because it was both a lot of stuff happened as well as there was quite a bit of exposition. <laughs> so they, I guess they did do a good job balancing those two aspects because at that point, this point, we we do need some explanation for things, which, you know, like that conversation between PT and Susan when they were talking about their past felt a little awkward, like in the middle of like, oh, okay, let's get through this expositional scene. But it was stuff that kind of needed to be said. Right. Because, I mean, a big part of the plot that, they, that they've established for this season is that they were going to explain the origins of, of Neolution, or at least the current Neolutionist movement, if you will. Yeah, I don't know how you do that without having a fair bit of exposition of specifically Westmoreland and Susan Westmoreland, who isn't really Westmoreland, but we'll get to that. But one of the big things they did do this episode is they brought Crystal back. And I guess I understand if people are maybe a little annoyed since she's not exactly one of our main clones, but they have been pretty good about using Crystal as a means of furthering the plot as a means of exposition in in a humorous and entertaining way, because Crystal is ridiculous and accidentally finds out stuff uh, all the time, it seems like. how I just don't know how she does it, because she's so terrible in, in so many ways, <laughs> and yet she manages to get results, right? <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this earlier, and I feel like it's reminiscent of Allison a little bit, mm. in that... They both have good instincts, like the instinct is right, but the conclusions are all wrong. That is a good point. That is a good point. Like Mm -hmm. in the first season, 
Allison rightfully was like, somebody is watching me, but then just focuses completely on the wrong person. I feel like Crystal is kind of the same way. Because she's always entertaining, right? This whole and I don't actually don't feel like it was the that much of the episode, really. Maybe I'm just misremembering. Maybe it's just that it was a decent amount of screen time, but just less dense, whereas all the stuff going on on the island was super dense. And I feel like you need that balance. I thought Crystal and her cosmetic storyline was a good balance to the really dense, heavy stuff going on at, at Revival and P.T. Westmoreland's house. Yes, I concur. And I always love seeing Crystal interacting with Art and, and Sarah. Like it, Their dynamic is so amusing to me. It really is, because... There's always this this tone of sort of flirtation on Crystal's part towards Art, <laughs> right? It's not just me, is it? No, she absolutely. She was less flirty with him here, I feel like, than she has been previously. But for sure, that is part of how it's she... It's true. How she... What's the word? She uses her wiles. Like, that's the way she kind of interacts with particularly men, it feels like, is to exploit that that side of her, her personality and her her appeal, I suppose. But there's this one scene, and nobody comments on it or anything, but she's very clearly checking him out. <laughs> and it just, it cracks me up a little bit. I missed like, that. I Art's need to go a back hunky and dude. Re-watch. I get it. <laughs> I missed her, her checking him out. I need to go back and, and find that. Yeah, it's, it, she's she's a little blatant about it. But again, nobody says anything about it. And, and Art just kind of gives her a slightly skeptical look if he's paying attention i don't even remember if he's paying it that much attention to it but she very clearly does like the 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 sweep the scan whatever you want to call it <laughs> the looking somebody up and down she does it mm. that's pretty funny and i just love how completely unimpressed crystal is with sarah <laughs> i know right <laughs> you and that australian girl are going to mess everything up <laughs> Is she really necessary? She's so rude. <laughs> Every time. But and, and I I personally was happy to see Crystal again even though like yes yeah, she's she's fluffy and I understand people wanting to move toward the end game of the series uh, but she's somebody who I always enjoy seeing and you know when we saw her last she was inducted into clone club kind of but still super skeptical and I was curious to see how they might interact with her again in the future. So I was super happy to see Crystal again, personally. Right. Again, I feel like they've been really good about using her as an entertaining way to do exposition. Yeah. It's like, well, there's this thing we need revealed. Let's bring Crystal in and have her fall into sort of this this bit of information and then come to a, a comedically wrong conclusion about it. With her KB natural beauty and their 50,000 subscribers, which amuses me. When she, when they were doing that introductory sort of YouTube vlog video, I just thought, this this is perfect. This this does feel like a YouTube video that I have seen uh, before. <laughs> I thought they nailed like the tone and the, like, the filming style and just how they were interacting with the camera. I thought it was perfect. Do you watch a lot of of beauty vlogs? I don't watch a lot of them, but I have seen a few. There were some that I followed for a while where I didn't realize when I first started watching the person that primarily they did beauty videos. Like, I found them because they did some weird thing that was outside their usual shtick. But then I realized, oh, this is what they usually do. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. You you are much more of a YouTube viewer than I am, I think. Yes, this is true. I actually is why I ask. follow particular vloggers on YouTube, whereas I don't think you do. I don't really, yeah. know. Now, I'm remembering correctly, right? Bree, who is Crystal's roommate, this is a different person than we saw her talking to at the end of last season, right? When they were... And it, I believe yeah, so, yeah. Because I, I believe the, that was a blonde woman last time when Crystal was talking to her. Right. So, Bree, I, I thought her interactions with Scott were very amusing and cute. And, and speaking of, of Scott and being cute, I, I thought I really want to just reach through my screen and give him a hug where he talked about, oh, you get used to being ghosted. I'm like, oh, Scott. I know, me too. Poor <sighs> Scott. He's so awkward. Scott doesn't deserve that, people. No, but he's so awkward. I, <laughs> I know. I, I love Scott to death, but he he is he's so awkward. <laughs> I relate, man. I relate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and I particularly I th- I found it amusing how <laughs> Crystal was. She called Brie like, "Oh, such a klepto." When I think at least one of the last times we saw Crystal, if not, yeah, one of the last times we saw Crystal, she was stealing all of those products from. The uh, Brightborn <laughs> uh, massage <Yep>. area. <laughs> it's true. So maybe you're not one to talk there, Crystal. But when has that ever stopped her? <laughs> but the stolen goods, that was the thing that they brought Crystal on to reveal to us, is that Dyad bought this cosmetics company for some sort of dermal delivery system. And I think we're left wondering, but why? Because this seems to cause hair loss in Brie, but I feel like that is not Dyad's end goal with whatever they might want to deliver dermally. Right. It seems unlikely. But the the whole point, though, being the delivery system rather than this particular version of it, I assume. Yes, I agree. Which she finds out by questioning Len, which was hilarious and amazing. (laughs) And question, did you recognize Len? He looked or familiar. Do you know who that is? He looked familiar, but I couldn't tell you who he was. That is Tom Cullen, who is Tatiana Maslany's boyfriend. Oh! That makes me feel slightly better about that scene. <laughs> I know, right? Because <laughs> some of it you're like, this feels awkward. And it's like, oh no, they're, they're comfortable with each other. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, because there was a lot of grabbing of body parts. And I was just thinking, oh my... Yeah, it gets pretty gropey. And so, unfortunately, I'd figured it out before then. (laughs) So I felt less weird about it in the moment. But because, yeah, it gets pretty gropey. Which somehow seems fitting with Crystal. (laughs) Well, this is what we've seen from her before, right? Like, she she uses her sexuality and people's attract being attracted to her to her advantage, right? Like, this this is it feels appropriate for Crystal. And also her being attracted to them. Yes. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. But I, I love just how she just would do the opposite of whatever Sarah and Art would, would tell her to do and just was terrible at covering up the fact that she was hearing people that that Lynn couldn't hear. She was just terrible the entire time and yet was still successful. And and her whole, you know, the constant, thank you, <laughs> <laughs> she says to nobody. I will say, though, seemingly to nobody at the, in the moment where Crystal says that her line about I'm peeing and then I'm going to kick him in the balls. <laughs> uh, I I thought that uh, Art's advice not to kick him in the balls was probably good. But ultimately, I was rooting for her when she did, in fact, kick him in the balls. <laughs> I know, right? It seemed appropriate in the moment. 
And I love that she also exacted her revenge by rubbing the hair loss cream in his beard. (laughs) (laughs) And he was so upset about it. Well, he clearly cares a lot about that beard. That was a very manicured beard. Mm Mm-hmm. But going back to the cream for a second, I am curious why Dyad is in, is interested in a dermal delivery system. I can I can absolutely see its potential applications for their purposes, but I do wonder mm-hmm. if there's a hint at something more insidious because they have clearly shown that they don't exactly have a whole lot of qualms when it comes to experimenting people on people or at least involving people in experiments with perhaps not entirely their consent. Right. I mean, I I fully assumed it was nefarious. Okay. (laughs) Just like, oh, Rachel's involved. Clearly this is no good. Pretty much. Because again, the whole, I mean, I think this is part of the thing, the fact that it is a dermal delivery system and that they're a cosmetics company. You could put anything you want in there. Exactly. And as you've mentioned, like, we've seen them do all sorts of things without people's full knowledge of it. So, yeah, I would not be surprised at all. Not that it necessarily is, but wouldn't be surprised. It feels like we should get some follow-up on this, though. Hopefully. Oh, for sure. Also, I'm now curious why it was called Blue Zone Cosmetics. That's probably not remotely relevant, but... It could be, though. You never know. It's true. So speaking of Dyad. And Rachel being terrible. And Rachel being terrible. Dyad and Rachel are once again trying to get Kira to show up at the beginning of the episode. But the Good Hair family has enacted a plan, which apparently involves mostly just, like, not letting them have Kira. (laughs) Apparently Mrs. S gave Kira some, uh, Ipecac to induce vomiting, which, poor Kara, because that's no fun. Yeah, she was a real trooper, I feel like, in this episode. She's all volunteering to go con Rachel if she needs to, and Sarah's trying to be like, no, no, (laughs) you stay here, don't worry about it. Because apparently that was what Delphine showed up for at the end of last episode, which I guess we did see, but... Yes, Delphine mentioned that whatever's going to happen to Kara was going to happen soon. So that's why they did the induced vomiting. And I liked that we saw in this episode, Mrs. S clearly told Sarah and Kara that's where the information had come from. So it feels like now, it, at least, Mrs. S isn't keeping Delphine completely secret, like her interactions with Delphine completely secret from the rest of the clones, just whatever it was, Mm -hmm. they talked about that first time, which apparently wasn't Virginia Cody. So what was it? I have no idea. I'm interested to see where all of this is going. But yes, I am also relieved that interaction is no longer secret between Mrs. Essen and Delphine. Because I felt weird about it. Like, I understood on some level, but... I think we're at that point where, like, the fewer secrets among the group, the better, probably. So, And I love that very pointed comment that Mrs. S makes to Rachel when she shows up about how, you know, someday you're going to need us. And I thought, ooh, it kind of gave me chills the way she said it. Like, ooh. <laughs> and that she made Rachel make eye contact with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I love Mrs. S so much. I love her, too. I really would not want to mess with S. Yeah. Yeah. Me, too. 
But the induced vomiting, it was only a temporary reprieve because Rachel, pushed by P.T. Westmoreland, the worst guy, you know, she comes to collect Kira at the end of the episode because she says that they are going to begin her hormone treatment soon. But another bit we got from Kira, she mentioned to Sarah, who at the time was putting on her her crystal wig, which is hilarious. Oh, I I loved Sarah's casually like dropping into her crystal impression, especially with Kira. <laughs> that was that was good times. And Kira just thinking it was hilarious, also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what? You don't like crystal? I love crystal. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. As that's happening, Kira tells Sarah that she has another code name that she came up with for Neolution Island, which is Wonderland, which I suspect will be important in future episodes. This is the second episode the season where they've left whatever's gone on with Kira very unresolved at the end of the episode, and it makes me anxious, and I don't like it. Which I'm assuming is the point. Yeah. Though I am excited by the idea, I actually am excited by the idea of seeing how Kira is going to deal with Rachel, like how she is going to handle the situation that she's now in essentially by herself. She doesn't have her protective, you know, Mrs. S or or Sarah with her now. And I think this could be a cool moment for Kira as a character. Right. Or as was the case in season two, Kasima. Mm, yes, good point. We've we've seen Kira have to deal with being in Dyad and being around Rachel before, but at least Kasima did insert herself into that situation, but but there's no Kasima there now, no. so Before we move on to talking about everything that happened over at Neolution Island, we wanted to mention what's going on on our other podcasts at the moment. On our Killjoys podcast, which is called The Quad, we are currently covering Season 3 of Killjoys. We are releasing weekly episode discussions, and you can listen to those episodes and subscribe to the podcast at our website, askgenretv.com slash killjoys. Also, we should mention Killjoys currently airing on Sci-Fi Channel, and you should watch it. It's good. It is good. And produced by the same people as Orphan Black. We are also covering season two of Winona Earp on our multi-fandom podcast, which is called Finalysis. Our other co-host who does not participate in this podcast, but participates in our other podcasts, Annie and I are discussing small batches of episodes at a time. Uh, The first Winona Earp discussion covered the first five episodes of season two. It is already available. You can listen and find out how to subscribe to that at askgenretv.com slash fan. So, Chris. Yes? Okay, I have a timer going. You may gloat for approximately 30 seconds, max, on how you were right about (laughs) P.T. Westmoreland. (laughs) I don't know that it will necessarily take me 30 seconds because I just wanted to be like, ha, called it! (laughs) (laughs) Which I did during the episode and did, like, touchdown arms... And, uh, yes, because I called it, because Susan called him John, so clearly his name isn't P.T. Westmoreland. Why couldn't we have gotten a more unique name than John? I got so mad when she called him that, like, no, (laughs) that is no help at all at figuring out who he really is. No, but to me, this is kind of perfect, right? Because he's some some dude with a random... 
average name who turned himself into Percival to make himself feel important. And I'm like, no, this sounds about right to me. <laughs> no offense to anybody named John. I have no problem with the name John, but it's a, it's a common name. It, absolutely. Absolutely. And it feels like pretty much every TV show at some point has a character named John on it, right? Again, like this, this kind of works for me in that sense, right? It's some, some guy and Susan even calls him out on having really sort of average intelligence, average science and math scores and stuff. Yeah, I think she she just emphasized his mediocrity, perhaps. Well, mediocrity might be a little little harsh, but he was not particularly brilliant when it came to science and, and, and such. But what he did have going for him was like a compelling personality, and he had money. So again, to my gloating, he's a con man who's turned himself into a cult leader, is basically what it is. Which I've been saying, and they confirmed this episode, so thank you. <laughs> I've been saying this for a month. <laughs> we also learned in that exposition scene that because he was rich, he could pay, essentially, for Susan and Virginia's participation in this project. Because I'm sure they were intellectually curious about it, clearly. But because he had money, he could actually fund their research and things. And so, you know, he kind of, he's hes like an Aldous Leakey figure, right? He becomes like the face that attracts people. And then he's got these these brilliant women working behind him actually doing the science. Mm-hmm. And I think we also got confirmation here that he's kind of a sexist jerk, yeah. right? Because... I mean, even if what he was saying was mostly from a social standpoint, the way he said it, I'm like, no. Nope. <laughs> he's like, he's like, and you were just a woman. <sighs> way to make me hate you, dude, more than I already did. He just did so many terrible things in this episode. I know. In case you weren't sure if he was the villain or not, he is. He is. Because the first thing he did was welcome Virginia Cody back into the fold. And I gotta say, she saunters back in there, and she looks great. <laughs> it's true. She does. And when she did saunter back in, and I guess throughout this entire episode, it occurred to me how nicely contrasting she and Susan Duncan are. Because even though I knew one of them was over Leda and one of them was over Castor, I, I, I knew that they sort of were two sides of a coin before. I, I think it hit me in this episode how nicely both like their ethics and their personas contrast. Because here we have Susan, who's just this elegant, well-spoken, articulate woman. And then we have Virginia Cody on the other side, who clearly just is intelligent, but she's so much more like earthy and has like a rawness to her where there's refinement in Susan. And I I just love them. I, I liked that scene they had with PT where – he talks about them. What he says of, of bringing them back together, he says, progress requires equilibrium, balance of opposing forces, no friction, no fire. So this idea that because they dislike each other and they, they have different ways of going about these things, that's where the brilliance comes. And it's like, I sure do dislike that guy, but he's not wrong. He's not. One thing he is wrong about, he has turned to parabiosis, which in this case, means blood transfusions from children, which, ew. That, no. No, no, sir. Right. <laughs> Again, I feel like the Revival Village has echoes of what we see from Johansson back in season two, this, you know, building this community around him that he can exploit for his own 
purposes, his own means. Yeah. Because he's basically treating the people of the village like, you know, like cows in a way, you know, drawing things that he requires from them to benefit himself. Also, do yourself a favor, do not Google parabiosis. Okay. (laughs) There was some stuff there that I kind of almost wish I hadn't seen. (laughs) Was it pictures or just information? There were diagrams, Hmm. which then made me read some stuff. Descriptions of what the actual experiments were that they did with mice. It's like, I kind of wish I didn't know they did that. So did you learn anything more about parabiosis in your brief jaunt on the internet? I was going to Google it, but then I saw your note not to Google it, so I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You can Google it if you want, but again, I kind of wish I hadn't seen some things. But I I guess really just what the idea is, is sort of exploring what would happen if two different types of... Okay, so they they took two mice, and so, like, some of it was, like, they'd have a diabetic mouse and a lean mouse, or two lean mice, or a diabetic mouse and an obese mouse. These These were the combinations, right? These were the types of mice that they would... Essentially, what they did... The, here, here's the non-graphic description. As implied in this episode, they had them share a blood supply is basically what they did. So they didn't, they didn't transfuse them is the thing. Okay. They did something much grosser and much more upsetting, which I will spare everyone the knowledge of. But they, they had them share a blood supply. So it was kind of interesting though, because they, I think half or more of them resulted in one of the mice dying. Mm. Yeah. I think it was the the ones attached to the diabetic mice would die because they'd stop eating. Mm. Yeah. So basically this idea of parabiosis is is transferring blood from one one being to another though it wasn't entirely a, a transfusion in these experiments. Yeah, the experiments that I happened to come across when googling parabiosis were about shared blood supply, but also there were a lot of articles about, I think there's one specifically titled Parabiosis, the New Snake Oil. Hmm. So it's sort of, it's sort of pseudoscience is really what it is. Cause there's no confirmation necessarily that it's effective. It's like they think it might be effective, but there's no solid science behind it uh, that I could see. Yeah, and I believe Susan calls it highly suspect science in the episode. Right. And it feels like hearing about the parabiosis, it's not, I won't call it the last straw because it feels like Susan has been, become disillusioned with PT for a while now. You know, I feel like that's probably why PT might have been messing with Rachel last season was she was no longer, you know, following him the way that he wished. And, and, you know, she feels uncomfortable with the methods that he is is taking on. This episode really became, I feel like, Susan's last stand in regards to trying to be a good person. I think we, we hear her struggling with a lot of moral and ethical hesitancies that she's been having. And I think some of that's exemplified in the fact that Virginia Cody came back, right? Mm-hmm. She was the one who Susan largely had 
ethical dilemmas with, right? Or or ethical conflicts with, I should say. And we'd heard her say earlier in the season that she felt PT had, you know, gone the way of Virginia's methods rather than hers. And and yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. a good point. So seeing her back, seeing her, you know, leaning on PT's chair so clearly by his side again, that probably was the big thing that caused Susan to rebel as as she tried to save them all, she says. And this goes back to Kasima's statement last episode about P.T. Westmoreland pitting women against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly what you see in that in that scene with the three of them, where they're, where they're by the fireplace, right? They're on two sides of, of P.T. at one point, and they're arguing. And I noticed when I rewatched that scene, he just has this self-satisfied look on his face. And I just wanted to reach through the screen and smack him. That dude's terrible. But Susan's conversations with Ira, I, I thought she expressed some she expressed some really personal stuff. You know, Ira tries to assure her that she's not a murderer, and she says that she's everything but. And while I think we have heard Susan express some regret before, that felt like the closest she had come to admitting that she perhaps had done something wrong. One kind of wonders what prompted this. Do we think it's that she's been spending more time with Kasima and Rachel? Or the fact that she's actually in revival now, surrounded by the subjects of these experiments and whatnot? The confrontation between her and Rachel probably didn't help things any, you know, to have your daughter stab you. Well, sure. (laughs) Because even though she's agreed to, like, stay and help and work with PT earlier this season, she made it clear to Ira that she was staying to keep her hand on the rudder toward doing the right thing. And I, I get the sense that perhaps this is something that she's struggled with for a while now and why PT wanted to unseat Susan from the head of Neolution, you know, as we see happens in season four when Rachel replaces her. But Susan says, I sacrificed everything for Neolution, people I loved, even my own soul. But now, Ira, it is time to bring it all down. So poetic, Susan. I know. This is this is a very poetic episode. It's true. Speaking of. <laughs> well, we, we get to that scene where she tries to, her attempt to save them all is to kill P.T., which I, I kind of wonder what her plan was with Virginia Cody, because she still would have been a difficult person to deal with. You know, she she clearly could have taken up the reins of the less ethical side of science. I mean, as, as Kasima says, she calls them all all too insane. I kind of agree. You know, <laughs> Susan kind of seems like the, mm-hmm. the best of not a great group, but <laughs> still not great. Uh, <laughs> uh, however, so Susan tries to kill PT. I'm, I, I suppose she puts, it definitely puts morphine in, the the IV. I, I don't know what else she might have put that was on the tray, though. Right. Yeah, that was the thing. I think the only one that we could clearly see the label on was the morphine. So, mm-hmm. so that's the one they wanted us to know about. Yeah. <laughs> and manages to get some of that deadly cocktail into to PT, and he's getting a little drowsy, and they have this exchange in which they quote, a poem by Wordsworth, Lines Written in Early Spring. 
And because I'm me, I decided to look it up. And though at least the version that I found online, it seems like maybe they, they said the poem kind of not in its original order. I could be wrong. It could be his different versions and or the, the poem was not correctly transcribed online. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert in Wordsworth. Uh, but this is this is in fact what Susan said, and I understand why she said it in this order. It is a lot more dramatic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Susan says, To her fair works did nature link this human soul that through me ran. If this belief from heaven be sent, if such be nature's holy plan, and much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. That is pretty dramatic. It is. But I think appropriate for Susan's seeming realization in this episode where what she has done is weighing upon her so heavily. Right. And here we've got the mention of, of the human soul again. Mm-hmm. She'd expressed concern that she'd... Sacrificed her own soul. Sacrificed her soul. Yeah. And, and quoting this... Is you know it talks a lot about nature here in these lines that she's she's quoting, and and nature's holy plan. This idea that there is something outside of human control is in contrast to what these three scientists have been trying to do their entire life, or at least that's how I am reading it. You know, one could argue about the the aspects of nature, etc. But I feel like that's probably why they selected these lines in particular. Hmm. So how did you feel when they revealed that Susan had been killed instead of P.T.? See, this is one thing the show does really well, right? Susan, last season, pretty villainous, right? Yeah. This season, they've introduced somebody worse, (laughs) which helped them redeem Susan a little bit. And also, I mean, we had the, the comeuppance scene at the end of last season where Rachel stabs her. So... They worked a little bit to redeem Susan a little bit. So I was actually pretty, pretty sad when they revealed that Susan had been killed. Me too. I, it was definitely an emotional moment for me. Like I I remember, you know, putting my hand to my mouth and sort of like surprise and sadness that she had been killed. And again, like I still don't think she was a great person, definitely the best of a terrible lot, uh, but for sure, she was. A- they were able to have her redeem herself in some ways, so that you would be, or th- maybe not all people, you know, but m- a lot of people would be emotionally affected by her passing. Well, and I think a lot of it too was this season, but especially this episode. They really showed that she'd changed her mind some. And very specifically was trying to help Kasima escape because she was like, this isn't right. We need to do something about this, which fits in with, you know, the show, right? These are our protagonists. This is something that needs to be stopped. So by bringing her in that way, that sort of emphasizes the actual sadness of her passing. And she's always been more on the clone side than many of our more villainous figures even when they first introduced her you know she they showed very clearly she mm-hmm. she knew stuff about them while they were useful to her she did see them more as people than the other scientists have seemed to in the past right this was something we discussed last week where not not is equals but certainly cares more about them than than others do 
Yeah. And I also, in that scene, I felt so bad for Ira. Poor Ira in this episode. I know. Poor, poor Ira. Poor glitching Ira, which they hinted was going to happen last episode, but still still hard to see this episode. Yeah, and, and it might just be they're taking some uh, creative license here, which is fine. Uh, but he did seem to, unless he has been holding out on how long he's been glitching for quite a while, it seems like he made pretty fast progression. Reg- what's the word? Where you deterioration? That's the word I'm looking for. Where we see him glitching so prominently in this episode. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard to tell because I don't know the last time we saw Susan test him. Oh, Susan! She test did him. test him last episode, but he didn't answer. Right. I don't feel like much time has passed since last episode. But then, like, when was the last time he had been tested prior to? What we see last week. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. But there's something, and I feel like this episode brought it out in particular. I feel like there's always been something uh, innocent and almost childlike about Ira. And it felt like mm-hmm. it was really, it was used to good effect in particular when he's meeting Virginia Cody in this episode, I felt. Right. Yeah, and, and we found out that he did actually spend some time with the other caster clones and... Virginia, and found out that Susan took him away when he was four, which makes their relationship creepier. (laughs) Yeah, it was already creepy already, but... mm. I know, but... I mean, they'd implied that he'd been with her for quite a while, but... But four. I mean, come on. (sighs) What did you think of him both wanting to meet Virginia as well as when we actually see them interacting? I understand the impulse. Because again, if he did spend some time with her and had a vague recollection of her and knew her to be the one who had created him, I mean, this is something that we've seen with Cosima, right? Where where she had wanted to meet her creators, the, the various ones that she's come across. So I get that, but also Virginia is terrible. So I know. <laughs> you're kind of like, like, Ira, don't do it. You're just going to be disappointed. How about you? I thought the scene between the two of them was really great. Just like the the instant mm-hmm. he stepped into that that trailer, it just felt so fraught is a good word, almost like poignant in a way. And te- it was telling how immediately Virginia tries to, I-, I think at least she was trying to manipulate him and turn him against Susan. Yes. And... That's a thing that we saw her do with Cosima also. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting uh, as as an introduction for Virginia to Neolution Island. Because I, I think Susan was telling the truth to Ira where, because Virginia tries to tell him that she was close to finding a cure and Susan says, no, she wasn't. Cosima is your best bet for a cure. I think from what we've seen, that is accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this idea that, oh, you know, Susan didn't try to fix you, did she? And that is definitely, he doesn't fall for her, from what we see at least. However, or fall for her machinations, I should say. We have to be clear, he has mother issues. (laughs) Uh, It's true. He doesn't seem to fall for her machinations. However, that comment to him must have stung, 
given what happened last season. It was last season, right? Where they were trying to do Correct. the, yeah, yes. trying to do the deal with, uh, uh, giving the Kendall. Yeah. Giving Kendall away. And he was feeling like they didn't care about, you know, curing him and, and all of this business. Like I felt in that moment, you, I was, I remembered when she said that, I remembered when, how helpless he had become in season four when, when that all went down with Kendall Malone. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, I, I feel like probably in Susan's mind, it's a matter of if we figure this one out, we can use that to figure out the caster issue. Mm-hmm. So having some of it is better than having none of it. Right. Logically, that makes sense. But with the personal attachments involved, yeah, painful. It felt noteworthy to me that I don't believe Virginia gives Ira an answer when he asks if any of his brothers are left. I don't know that Virginia would know. That's the question. Does she even know? Or is this potentially a door to bring back Mark? Like, is that why it was partially included in the writing? Was that it might be a a way to introduce Mark again into the mix? Mm Mm-hmm. Because Mark is the one that we know is out there, or at least was before. I'm trying to remember if any of the other caster clones were at large at the end of season three. Not any of the ones that we met. All the other caster clones that we saw had been killed. So he was the only one that we knew of, at least, besides Ira, who was introduced the following season, who was at large. Okay. I mean, I think they had hinted that there were at least one or two that we hadn't met. Yes. But yeah, as far as, like, ones we had seen is is what I was trying to get at. But that's the thing about clones, right? You can always introduce more. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we never got a a sense of how many caster clones there were. I think we have the sense that there's a whole lot of Lita clones, but they never gave a firm idea of how many there were. It, it felt to me like perhaps there were fewer just because there was reference to them all like sleeping together in a pile, but it could just be that was a particular group of them. Who knows? There could be as many caster clones as there right. are Lita clones. I think at some point they did name a number, but didn't necessarily say that that was the extent of it. Yeah. And I think the number was higher than the number we had been introduced to at that point. But I don't remember specifics anymore because it was a couple seasons ago. Yeah, I'm regretting that I didn't try to do a rewatch of the series before season five started. <laughs> it's going to happen when yeah, the season... Yeah, all I managed was season four. It's going to happen when the series ends, though. I'm going to do a rewatch of the whole thing. It's going to happen, Chris. Okay. So speaking of Ira and his brothers, it did feel like Ira distinguished himself as quite different from the other casters that we've met in this episode. I mean, I certainly thought so, because we saw him do something that, to me, was pretty selfless. And I can't think of anything the others did that was selfless on this level. At least, you know, it didn't feel that way to me. Because he he gives the information that Susan had given him to Kasima because he's not sure if he's going to be able to make it. Yeah. And arguably, he's doing that for Susan. But still, that's pretty selfless, I think. I feel like this has been a big shift for him. He's been fairly protected and on the sidelines for most of his life, it seems like. And now he's actually been brought in the game. 
in a really crucial way, particularly in this season. He was somewhat in season four as well. And I agree. I feel like he has really shown himself to be a good man and a good person. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did bring him in a little bit in season four, but yeah, it just felt like he wasn't really prepared for it then to yeah, me. I agree. So good job, Ira. I'm worried about him, though. So worried. Yeah, his fate was really left up in the air in, at the end of this episode, too. I mean, his, you know, he's bleeding from his nose. I don't think necessarily they were implying that death was imminent. Like when we see Seth in back in, in season three, you know, when he confronts Sarah, I don't think that or confronting Cal. Uh, I don't think that he'd seem to be at that level of deterioration yet, but he doesn't seem well. Right. And now that Susan is gone, you know, he has he has no ally on Neolution Island. I wonder if Virginia's gonna try to do something. Oh, she probably will, because she's terrible. Probably. Poor Ira. I must say though, I felt a little silly in the scene where Ira comes to free Kasima and try to recruit Mud, because he just like walks up and unlocks her gate and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> so he could have done that earlier maybe <laughs> but for some reason it just didn't occur to me that somebody could let Kasima out like that he would have the freedom to do that if that makes any sense mm-hmm. well but I don't know that there was the impetus to do that before necessarily yeah well it definitely without a larger plan of how to deal with the rest of the situation, releasing Kasima in that moment probably ultimately wasn't, wouldn't have been fruitful. Because mm-hmm. clearly, you know, Susan was trying to negotiate for PT to release her earlier in the episode. She just, you know, she's a plotter, Susan Duncan. <laughs> yep. So since we're talking about uh, the plot to free Kasima, shall we talk about mud? Yeah, she got quite a quite a bit of uh, important stuff in this episode. She did, including a bit of backstory. We found out that she's from Seattle, which I gotta say, good job, Kasima, because forming a human connection with the people holding you hostage is what they tell you to do in such situations. Kasima was being so very Kasima in this episode to me, because... Mm-hmm. <laughs> She calls, she tells Virginia Cody and the rest of them that she, you know, she's, they're all, they're frankly, they're all too insane. And so, you know, really separating herself out ethically from other science figures on the show. We hear her talking about choice. She says to that, that line to mud about, um, oh, the, are you here by choice? Because I'm not. Yeah. That line. Exactly. And, and then we also hear her talking about, the clones and and Kira as her family, which always gets to me. Whenever one of the clones talks about Kira as their niece, I'm like, oh, you guys. Yeah. And refers later to Charlotte as her sister. Mm-hmm. I, I just love Kazima's use of family language when it comes to the complicated genetic tree that is the clones and their family members. Yeah. And she really drew on that to try to connect with Mud, which is what made me make that comment. You were talking about, you know, trying to make a human connection. And that seemed to strike a chord with Mud. Yes, apparently her her family, at least she thinks, doesn't want her back because she says that she was a junkie. She had betrayed her parents. She said she, she stole from them. 
and had apparently overdosed, but not died from it. She said she was in a coma and woke up at Revival. And so it seems like she feels indebted to P.T. Westmoreland. Yeah, that reveal made me wonder how many others on the island that P.T. brought there similarly. Well, I mean, we know that he did that at least once, because Delphine. Absolutely. But for the others that we've seen in the village, I had more of a sense that they'd come there more by choice, I suppose. Maybe they, somebody from the village had reached out to these particular families, but it wasn't that they were sort of transported unconscious the way that they had with Delphine and Mud. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a combination of the two. People who they feel wouldn't, quote unquote, wouldn't be missed. I, f- I feel like either way, we get, we're getting the sense that PT has likely been preying on desperate people. But we see in this episode that she had decided to punish herself for helping Yanis. And she says she, she got him killed, but you know, we know that's not really true, but, but she feels guilty for it and has decided to wear a cowbell as her punishment. This seems like appropriate behavior from somebody who decided to call herself mud, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I can see it. But darn the cowbell, because that's sort of how PT sways her back into working for him or working with him. Trusting him, I guess, would maybe be the the way to put it, because she was going to help Susan with poisoning him, but then changes her mind when he's all like, no, no, take that cowbell off and forgive yourself. Darn it! Darn it, Westmoreland! I know you're manipulating her, but still being being kind at that moment. Ah! Yes, perhaps if she had not been wearing her guilt so obviously, it wouldn't have been as easy for him to manipulate her as, as he did. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Mud, at the end at least, when she sees the picture of him and Susan Duncan back in 1967, she seems to perhaps regret unbetraying P.T. and betraying Susan in that moment. Yeah. I'm kind of curious what's going to happen with Mud next episode. Yeah, because I'm just not sure where her head will be at exactly. And especially with the the village in chaos. I mean, they started burning tents and things, but it's not like... I see, it seems unlikely to me, at least, that that many people would just be able to exit the island suddenly. So is there going to be some sort of standoff or revolt between P.T. Westmoreland and the villagers next episode? What's going to happen there? They do have guns, the villagers. It's true. And fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually got some feedback about this. Mean Clone Girls from Twitter says, Okay, so about Season 5, Episode 6... I thought it was far-fetched, but still kind of believable when Kasima blew the camp up with the with that big reveal about P.T. Westmoreland. The clan-slash-cult-slash-campers who had been following this guy for who knows how long are just all of a sudden like, oh, for real? Dude's not 170? Let's burn this place. However, it was still kind of believable because people can blindly follow someone one second and then abandon them the next. I actually kind of had questions about this, too, because... I mean, it's it's one photo, right? Yeah. And it's an old photo, and Photoshop exists. And so part of me is just kind of like, I don't know, I, I wonder if people were already suspicious. And if, I mean, clearly things had been 
tense in revival since what was the guy's name who died? Salvador. Salvador, thank you. Salvador had died and Aisha had just died. And so tensions were running high. So I guess I can kind of see it. But at the same time, it does seem like a really extreme reaction. And mostly I was thinking, why are you burning the place where you live when you could burn the place where he lives? Yeah. <laughs> Unless they were going to like storm that place since it was nicer anyway. Take it for their own. I do feel like that particular plot line could have used a little bit more room to breathe in some previous episodes because I think we needed to see longer that tensions were existed between the villagers and P.T. Westmoreland. Because while they do try to ramp up that tension in this episode for sure, it felt rushed to me. So when he does have that so immediate reaction to the photograph, which is not the greatest proof, as you point out, it didn't feel I didn't wholly buy it in the moment. Yeah, I think they could have done with maybe an episode or two, at least more of maybe establishing some, some doubt or some hesitation on the part of the people who were there. Because mostly what we saw were people being like, he's going to cure us. And when it came to Salvador's death, we see his wife speaking out about how she felt some anger because the founder hadn't said anything, etc. I don't know. That one was maybe a little curious to me, just because it feels like, to me, what they were offering was potentially an extended life cure for illness and things like that. That guy got his throat cut. It doesn't feel like that is something that goes against what P.T. Westmoreland was promising the villagers. But on the other hand, I right. can't... Unless it was just her being angry that, yeah. like, we came here to live longer and it got him killed. Yeah. Why aren't we being protected? Why hasn't he said anything about my husband's death? So I could maybe see it from that side of it. Mm-hmm. And then I had a question about Aisha's death because we see her being carried from the trailer where Virginia Coady was taking blood from all of the children. Are we meant to assume that she or whatever she might have done to Aisha might have contributed to her death? I don't know. I was curious about that also. I mean, they established last episode that he wasn't actually curing her illness, but just shrinking the tumor. Right. But yeah, there was no explanation, really, as to what it was that had actually happened that caused her death. And something that I did notice on rewatch when Anna is talking to Mud, because Mud, you know, sees people being upset that Aisha has died. And Anna says to her that another child, Aisha, has died, implying that were that there were other children who had passed away. Mm. And if that's the case, I don't... I miss that. I don't... I, I did too on first watch. And if that's the case, if that had happened, I kind of wish that they had mentioned it before, because then it, I think it could have helped build the tension between the villagers and the and Westmoreland more, because that's especially... Mm -hmm. That's especially... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But, you know, that the death of a child is definitely something that can rally a community to action against an oppressive force. Yeah. And I love Kasima, but I felt a little frustrated with her that she so quickly gave away the quote-unquote proof of Westmoreland's lie to the villagers. Like, no, don't leave it with him. Take it back. Take it back, Kasima, and run. <laughs> well, I mean, what's she going to do, though? Because they're all armed and angry. I mean, fair. Fair. But I don't know. It just kind of felt like, Kasima, that was your 
that was like your 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 ace in the hole and it feels like she gave it away too quickly but i suppose like if she went back to the mainland like who would she show it to they were the people who would probably be most likely upset by westmoreland's lie i mean as far as anybody else knows pt westmoreland had died right like i don't think his continued existence was widely known elsewhere right right yeah like to the to the wider world but I also felt irrationally frustrated at the the villager who tried to stop Cosimo when she was coming out of the medic trailer. I was like, who do you think you are? The messenger just being awful all the time? <laughs> yes. But then I started thinking, it feels like he should be the one who's who's bothering Cosimo. Where is that guy this week? <laughs> That's a good question. Where is the messenger? We saw hmm. we saw him last week because he was in the house when Giannis broke in. But he mm-hmm. but he wasn't he wasn't there this week. It did feel like he should have been around, though, when the villagers were getting angry, trying to calm them down, because he clearly is a is an ally of Westmoreland's. Right. I'm going to assume he was in the house. Sounds good to me. I don't know. It does seem like he'd go be nosy and interfere when the village started burning, but whatever. Maybe we'll get that explained next week. But thank goodness Kasima managed to get her treatment back. She coughed again in this in this episode. It's like, ah. <sighs> And I feel fairly confident that Cosima and Charlotte managed to escape. I'm just hoping that we won't see next week where somebody, I don't know, Rachel's goons, I don't know, find them and bring them back. No. no. Come on, Stephanie. Don't <laughs> do not do that to me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, I like to prepare myself for the worst. Because last time a clone made it to that bo- boathouse, you know, Sarah got hauled back. I know. <laughs> I know. But they made it to the boat, and they were leaving. Mm-hmm. And and with Cosima's reassurances about her her knowledge of boats. Her nautical skills, yes. And she had oars, so I'm feeling hopeful about them. I, I, I'm hoping they'll make it. One final thing that struck me this week when Virginia reappeared is that we now have three characters who are... Neolution slash dyad associated and round necklaces seem to be a thing for them because Virginia was wearing a round, like a large round pendant in this episode. We've seen Rachel several episodes now wear what looks like a watch to me around her neck. And that first appeared back in episode one of this season. And then we have Mr. Frontenac, who it's a much smaller pendant but he also wears a round pendant necklace hmm and then i realized oh yeah the, the messenger also wears necklaces i can't recall if he has one that has a round pendant but he does wear a necklace hmm it may mean nothing but it did strike me i doubt it means nothing i just don't know that we'll necessarily find out what it does mean i am perfectly willing to admit that yeah okay so we got some feedback from our last discussion about Marion Bowles, Annette said, I just wanted to let you know that I agree Marion Bowles is probably Deep Throat. On MK's chart, Marion was marked as deceased. In the recently released book, The DNA of Orphan Black, there is a clone relationships chart. Marion Bowles is not listed as deceased on this chart. I, too, need closure on her character. Fred sent an email saying that... She was not mentioned as dead on her dyad personnel file, which MK had discovered, whereas Dr. Leakey and Dr. Nealon are. 
Though that does beg the question, if these personnel files that MK found listed Marion Bowles as not dead, why was she then listed as dead on her chart? Is there more information MK had that we do not? However, I'm all for believing that Marion Bowles might be alive, could be deep throat, and we might get closure on her character. Well, and let us remember that Dr. Leakey, they didn't actually know had died. Remember that? They they had arranged to have him killed, but Rachel's like, no, I'm going to give you a head start, and we'll, we'll say we killed you, but you just have to run and hide. She didn't know that he'd actually died. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, the, the options are open. We know Dr. Nealon is pretty dead. I feel confident about that one. <laughs> well, we saw it happen, and it happened in Dyad, so yeah, I would think their information on that would be more accurate. We also got a, a very nice comment from Ralph. He had some feedback about Kasima. He says, thanks for talking through the emotional aspects of the Kofine last week. I was confused about how I felt about it as well and came to the conclusion that more information about Delphine's agenda will be needed before we know whether this is a healthy situation. It did remind me of some comments that Tatiana made on the Unqualified podcast last year about one-sided relationships she's experienced, so I expect that more clarity is ahead. The most interesting thing I noticed on the rewatch was Kasima's bedside manner with Aisha, which is similar to her approach to Kendall Malone. She was very clear about the patient's agency through the conversation and worked to be clear with them. It's not clear to me whether Kasima has medical education in her background, as Delphine clearly does. But Kasima clearly has a different approach than the other medical professionals in the show display. It was good to see PT acknowledge that aspect of Kasima's approach. I agree. That's something, like you know, like we mentioned earlier, that's something I've always liked about Kasima's character and something she's done consistently throughout the series as is emphasize agency, especially the agency of people in like medical environments. And I've I've always really liked that about Kasima. Mm-hmm. It's a clearly a big theme of the series. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. You can send them to us in a variety of ways. You can email us, feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. You can send us a voice message. We love getting those in a couple of ways. You can call our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. Or you can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to us. You can find us on Twitter at TIE Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. You can find our other podcasts about Killjoys and Lost Girl and some other things over at AskGenreTV.com. This week, Lynn's well-manicured beard was played by Tatiana Maslany. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>